Welcome to Start By Listening, the podcast about sexual harm and trauma. We are centered on educating and empowering our Western Kentucky communities. Our goal is to transform the way we talk about sexual harm and trauma. Transformation begins by listening to understand. We talk so you can listen today and change the world tomorrow. Well, good morning, everybody. It is Jennifer, aka the Friendly Therapist, here today with my PIC, Miss Shelby. And we hello. have yes, hello. We have an amazing guest here today. We have Father Mike Clark. He is the priest at Blessed Mother Catholic Church here in Owensboro, Kentucky. And he has so graciously agreed to join us on our podcast for season three. And Father Mike, uh, welcome. And thank you so much for joining Shelby and I today. Well, I'm happy to be here. And I look forward to this conversation and see how it unfolds. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, we appreciate you taking your time. My have to be part of my conversation. So uh, I'm noticing uh, on the screen that sometimes you're just getting a tip. So I'll try to <laughs> raise it a little bit and uh, uh, make it to where when I'm talking with my hands that people understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Love it. Raise I'm that a hand talker too. I'm right That's there right. with you. So one of the mm-hmm. quick story, one of the funniest things about preaching is if you're using your hands a lot, uh, people learn to get your gestures. And so uh, instead of just articulation, you've got gesticulation and it sometimes makes a point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, One Sunday, this little baby was just top of the lungs screaming. And I walked up to the mom and did like this. And she looks at me and her eyes got really wide and I just took the baby and held it and gave my whole homily. So what some people would call sermon, we Catholics would call a homily. And my my whole homily, I was just speaking to the baby and just letting everybody else be uh, observers to that. After mass, people came out and they said, Father Mike, that was great. And of course it was framing things differently. Mm-hmm. The message was good, they said, but some of us were taking bets <laughs> about how long you could hold the baby without doing this. <laughs> 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 and they were waiting for me to drop the baby. You know? Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, figuratively, anyway. Uh, so we'll see how this conversation goes when it's in a uh, format that's a little different than than the live. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I think that COVID has taught us the past, what, going on three years now, is that it's finding ways to connect with others in unconventional ways, right? And it's, it's different um, seeing somebody on a, a screen versus sitting down over a steaming hot mug of coffee where you can smell, you can get all of the different uh, senses going. It is a different feel, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. But we have to meet people where they are and hopefully this uh, opportunity Mm -hmm. will uh, generate 
some dialogue and some thought for folks, including us. Oh, I hope so. Well, not only do I hope so, like whoever watches it, but yeah, in this moment. Um, so when I approached you about season three and our idea of scouring the community, looking for different groups and understanding how specific groups within our community identify trauma, experience trauma, and respond to the trauma. Um, I was really excited to speak with you today because I think you have a very unique perspective on trauma and um, just going to open up the question. When you think back over the last several years and you think about what trauma is in general, what have you noticed within the Catholic faith, maybe even specifically at Blessed Mother? What are some of the traumas or a trauma that has really become quite prevalent? There are several, but one that uh, truly stands out above the rest is uh, when someone experiences loss of a family member, and most particularly when they experience the loss of a spouse. Mm. For people that are grounded in their faith, the church is a locus for organizing their life. Uh, they have a rhythm of prayer at home, and then they have the rhythm of coming to church uh, with their loved one and connecting to the larger community. Mm -hmm. Often when a funeral is celebrated uh, for a person that comes to church all the time, at least weekly, some people that even come daily, after the funeral celebration and the bereavement meal where people uh, say, you know, it's terrible that this is uh, like a family reunion, but then on the other hand, it's not terrible because it's surrounding them with love and support and keeping the memory of their loved one uh, alive and present. Uh, once that fades and the family goes home and life for everybody else goes back to normal, the very place where the person has found solace and connection with God and with the community it's hard for them to come. And that may surprise people. But if you think about it, uh, you can open yourself to move toward that experience because if they come and sit in the same pew, the absence of their spouse is profound. Wow. Yeah. And so just, just having the courage and the energy to enter the door of the church and then having that whole flood of memory, uh, it's often a, a real challenge. And when you don't see somebody that you had seen on a regular basis, uh, reaching out to them and giving them invitation helps give them a nudge. Another thing that uh, happens organically in a lot of instances is someone in the family or circle of friends 
will start attending mass with the person that's lost their spouse. And then that gives them a companion. And in some cases, uh, that doesn't happen with the family because they either uh, live too far away or just, you know, pick some reason. So those that would normally sit around them two or three pews away, uh, they move. And I've witnessed that uh, repeatedly, and it's marvelous uh, because they realize that there's that empty space. And you'll look up and uh, start my preaching and see, uh, oh, there's somebody sitting with this widow or this widower, and it's somebody that's not in their normal pew. Um, wow. So that's, that's a beautiful progression. Uh, uh, you know, I grew up at Blessed Mother from like kindergarten, you know, through high school. And as you as you were explaining and talking about that, I was thinking about how um, when people go to church, where they sit in a pew is very similar to where people claim their space at the dinner table. You know, it's like, I have a seat. This is my seat. I feel comfortable in my seat. This is my safe space. And I, I was thinking back to like um, people that had been married, you know, 40, 50 years and had been attending church for this whole length of their, their marriage. I would think walking back into a church without that comfort, without that safety, connection, security that had been so prominent, that I'm almost wondering, like, could that be a whole level of a complex grief on its own? As, you know, just not just the grieving the loss of a loved one, but grieving the loss of safety and security in a space that had meant so much as well. I don't know. I'm just kind of just, you know. I think you're on target, Jennifer. Uh, and there is a connection between gathering around the table at home and gathering around the table of the Lord at church. And we as Catholics, not only make that connection, but we promote that. And our whole word for gathering around the table of church, Eucharist, is a Greek word that means thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you come and you're grieving, you don't feel very thankful. Uh, you might list and know in your mind the blessings that you have, letting the grace penetrate you. Uh, may not be happening because all of your own stuff is is blocking you from really absorbing it. My mind's going in about 14 directions and I'm looking <laughs> off in the corner to say, okay, which which way do we go with this? Um, for some people, not only coming to church, is a challenge, but gathering at the table in the home is a challenge. 
After celebrating a funeral for someone's spouse, when follow-up happens and you go and do a home visit with people, uh, I've learned over my 27 years as priest that if you give somebody a heads up and say, I would like to come and visit with you and just have lunch. And they say, well, Father Mike, you're a good cook. And, you know, I'm intimidated by that or whatever. I, say, I don't care. I can have a bologna sandwich. We can have sardines. You can make something fancy. It does not matter. You go and you have a pastoral visit and you share a meal. And during the meal, it's amazing what people will uh, self-disclose. Often they haven't been eating properly and they find it difficult to sit at the table and look across at an empty space, just like at church. So the two places where you're nourished in the home and in the church, uh, there's a profound sense of loss and absence. So you have to uh, encourage the person to, to figure out a way through that. If there are other people in the home, uh, it, it helps to diffuse some of that. But if you are at a certain stage of life to where it was just you and your spouse, mm -hmm. then things are too quiet. And I can't eat because I'm sitting here at the table and I'm crying because I would normally be talking to my spouse about whatever they would uh, converse about. Hmm. So I find this conversation so fascinating i know nothing about catholicism or eating at the dinner table and my question before you started going into that was going to be is this a trauma that you address the people moving seats or do you allow it to happen organically but then i started thinking about my limited knowledge so father my people come to you with their trauma correct like with confessional that's a Catholic thing. So you're hearing people and you help people process these traumas. How, how do you feel um, with this very prominent grief and helping people process? What is your, um, how do you acknowledge their grief? How do you sit with them through their grief? How do you help them process this? Like, what is your way of going about that? Does that make sense? It does make sense, Shelby. Okay. Uh, Some things are different with each family because their needs are expressed differently. Mm -hmm. But there is a beauty and a richness in the tapestry of our 2,000-year Catholic history that provides some built-in mechanisms. For instance, November 2nd is the Feast of All Souls. So November 1st is All Saints Day, November 2nd, the next day, we celebrate all the souls of those who have gone before us. One of the things that we do to make that concrete is somebody on staff sends 
an invitation to each family that has lost a loved one in the past 12 months. They are invited to come and gather for that mass on all souls. During the petitions, so in the middle of the mass, when we begin to transition from the liturgy of the word, where we've read the readings and I've preached, we offer our petitions to God. At the end of that, the names of all the deceased are read reverently, slowly. Members of the family, when they enter church, receive a candle and up by the baptismal font, the symbol of our beginning of our life in faith and our connection to Christ, there is a memory board and it has pictures of all the deceased on it. So as the names are read, families come up and place a candle on a table in front of the memory board. And that is a magnificent thing because even if a person is coming completely by themselves, they're surrounded by usually several hundred people and those others have gone through something similar to what they've gone through in the past 12 months. So there is a natural sense of camaraderie and fellowship and you don't have to say anything, you can feel it. Mm. And that uh, is, is a beautiful thing that uh, is built into our church year. I'm sure community is very important. I said community is very important. So I hear that this may be a loaded question, but after that <laughs> time of grief, do you see more people retreating from faith or coming to faith as a means of coping? Because I know loss, I mean, that can shake your entire foundation. So what are you seeing? I mean, sounds like your church has a real sense of community, but I can see how it can go the other way. What is your take from that? Some people uh, will react in one direction, like what you were saying, and some in the opposite. For those that retreat, to use your word, Shelby, from their faith, uh, I would want to clarify that or tighten that expression a little bit to say, they may not be running away from their faith, but they're finding a new way to express it because okay. they may be angry with God, angry with medical personnel, whatever the situation that, that uh, was surrounding the end of their loved one's life. Uh, they may target things and uh, they've got to grieve and work through and acknowledge that and, and move through it. Uh, so for some people, we may not see them at church, but you can't make the presumption that they don't have faith. It's they're having difficulties restructuring and figuring out how to make it through. 
And some may be coming to church and you can't make the presumption that, oh, their faith is strong and they're unflappable because they're here all the time, just like they were. And they've just bucked up and they're still doing it because inside they may be a mess. One of the things that uh, we are unfolding it's beginning on September the 6th, so just a week and a half out. Have to think what day it is. <laughs> we are doing a five-session presentation discussion group on grief, and it's being conducted by one of the members of our parish. His name's John Costco. He has co-written a book entitled Tomorrow Died Yesterday. It is a workbook that goes with it. It's dealing with specifically the loss of a spouse, but the questions and reflections uh, are applicable uh, more broadly to, to loss of a child or a parent, but this book is honing in on the loss of a spouse. So what we did uh, to, to launch this, of course, we've advertised in the bulletin on our website. We sent a specific invitation to everyone who has lost a spouse in about the past three-year period to give them opportunity. We also have connected John Costco with Betty Medley Wallace, who's the grief counselor at Glen Funeral Home. Five sessions isn't going to magically fix somebody or move them all the way through their grief, rather than offering something and getting people opened up and working through the grief and then just leaving them. What our plan is, is to do the five sessions. Then if the group wants to continue as a group to have them uh, interface with, with Betty and see whether they can join one of the groups that she already has going uh, or whether they could form a new group and she and John Costco be resources for them. Uh, some of the people might even want uh, individual conversation and that gives an opportunity and a resource for that as well. So that's giving people uh, a longer term care rather than just saying, yes, we acknowledge you uh, are grieving and in our society, we want to give people a quick fix and here it is and then move on. You know, read this book, do this, cry three times and you're finished. Uh, for some people, they move through quicker than others. And some think that they've moved through it and then something will trigger them. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So part of pastoral care is journeying with people. And uh, as the pastor, I'm given the privilege and the responsibility of the care of souls. 
so the curé autumnarum, uh, which for the structure of our church, uh, it tells us and teaches us that if you take on the role uh, as a pastor, if you accept that call and that appointment, that you have the care of souls for every person in your parish boundary, not just Catholics, not the people that are registered at Blessed Mother Catholic Church, but everybody in the parish boundary where our church sits. So I, I should be open and paying attention to their needs. And obviously as one man, I uh, don't have the energy and all the resources to give everybody everything they need. And if I think that I do, then I'm setting myself up for failure. Part of the role as the pastor is to tap other people's gifts and to draw them in, just like this example with John Costco and with Betty Medley Wallace. They're the experts in that area. The knowledge and experience I have from walking with people can assist me in accumulating a list of people and being the conduit between them and this real resource. That's, I mean, like, that's just really amazing. Um, is Here's a question. I mean, I am Catholic, but non-practicing. Is this initiative for the the grief group that Blessed Mother is doing? Is is this like a diocesan theme wide, or is this just something that you and some maybe like John within the parish recognized as a need for Blessed Mother? Like, how did that conversation happen? It's. Um... I started to say something and I, all I got was it's, sorry about that. <laughs> this particular group is something that's developed here at Blessed Mother. Okay. The diocese has, through its history, invested in giving people opportunities to gather individually or small group for grief uh, and to process that. Uh, in fact, Betty Medley Wallace, before she worked with Glenn Funeral Home, worked for the Diocese of Owensboro, and she did uh, some counseling groups on grief and also uh, for divorced and separated, oh, okay. which is a different type of trauma and grief. Uh, some of the Markers may appear similar to losing a spouse, because, like a death, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but then there are some some real differences with that. So Betty and I have known each other for a long, long time, and she did terrific work with the diocese. And then when she moved over to Glen Funeral Home, she continues to have that sense of care for everybody in her circle and her employer is permitting that to happen, which is marvelous. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like a, a whole new form of like stewardship, right? I mean, it's understanding that grief is not contained within the boundaries of the funeral home, right? Like, right. Grief just doesn't happen at a funeral. It, it's, it is a, sometimes a sustaining trauma for many people. And then it can become that complex and complicated grief, you know, which is, is different than just like um, the acute grief. Um, so I think that is a beautiful recognition of Glenn Funeral Home to say, yes, um, this is a partnership that is very beneficial for those who have been affected by the loss of a loved one. And if I'm not mistaken, would Glenn not be considered also the funeral home within the uh, parish boundary for Blessed Mother as well? Yeah, like I'm thinking like what you said and then kind of like looking at how that comes together and connection. Yes. And if you look at the boundaries for Blessed Mother, we have three nursing homes and one assisted living in our parish boundaries. And we oh, have uh, masses at those locations. The Carmel home has their Oops, technical difficulties. <laughs> There's, because there you go. You, you glitched, Father Mike. You what? glitched. You glitched. If you'll go back, we'll, we'll edit that. <laughs> if, you, okay. if you were talking about um, the three nursing homes and then you got as far as Carmel home and then you were you were frozen. OK. So we'll see how where my hands are. We'll start someplace. <laughs> the Carmel home is uh, self-supporting with their masses because they have a priest chaplain. The other three, Father Jamie and I, when COVID permits, uh, have a monthly mass in those nursing homes. And it's, it's terrific because that gives us connection with people that otherwise would be isolated, mm -hmm. and not necessarily feel the strength of the community around them. Mm -hmm. This back to the last conversation is to give them some space and time to grieve, but then invite them to figure it out. Oh, you're glitching bad, Father Mike. Yeah, you just, yeah, you glitched twice. I don't know uh, if something's happening with my computer or what. I don't know if it's, it's probably running something in the background, you know, it's defragging the hard drive or something. <laughs> so, um, We'll pick up. You had said um, you're bringing connection to those who would otherwise be isolated. Yes. And so at, on the nursing home side, but also on the side of people that have lost a spouse. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you can invite a person into after they've lost a spouse is to come and assist 
at the nursing home has. And so for Father Jamie, he needs drivers. So somebody can come and that's a non-threatening thing. And it gives that person a sense of purpose, but also draws them out of themselves. And they come early and talk to the people that are gathering for the nursing home mass, residents and staff. And then they stay afterward and uh, continue to process with people. And it's amazing how that helps them heal. Another, oh, yeah. I, I about cut you off there. Sorry. Oh, another was, another yeah. invitation for them is to come and do something as simple as uh, staff the receptionist area at church when we're having a, a meeting with everybody that's employed and we're in a conference room. Somebody needs to be frontline answering the phones, welcoming people at the door. And most people say, well, I can come do that for an hour. Once again, it gives them connection because instead of sitting at home by themselves with all of their memories, now they have people that they have to greet and stories start unfolding. And especially if it's a, a person in the parish that's been here for a long time, inevitably somebody will call or walk through the door that they know and they'll be chatting them up for 10 minutes and then that creates a sense of hospitality and welcome for the whole parish and lets a person turn their grief and loneliness and isolation back into service and ministry and contribution and it it lifts them gives them a sense of self-worth and so then it benefits everybody and it becomes symbiotic. Well, yeah. And, you know, for years um, in psychology and in social work, uh, when looking at research and depression and grief, you know, because depression can be situational. Right. And, and through grief, that is a situation. Um, it's always been talked about within like all of my learning and in psychology and college and psychology and sociology and and social work that when we can find meaning and do meaningful activities through the day that that really does affect our mood and it can uplift mm-hmm. right those yes. moments of experience of depressive symptomology um And as you were sharing all these beautiful ways that Blessed Mother builds in um, what I would call that safety net, that support system for those who are willing, right, to say, yes, uh, yeah, I I maybe don't want to get out of my pajamas today, but sure, Father Mike, I'll come and, you know, I'll answer the phones, right, you know. Right. Um, That is... I think a beautiful ministry in and of itself of, of helping those who might feel left out, left behind without, excuse me, a purpose to understand and experience um, that meaningful connection and activity. And I think that's just a beautiful 
um, way that Blessed Mother is is just, I guess, shining and showing um, the community, showing the Catholic faith in general. You know, here's how we attend to that trauma of grief. Here's how we are working and figuring out what works for individuals. Cause that, that is an individual response. That's not like a, Oh, everybody is going to grieve this way. Right. And so here's the like just charcuterie board answer. You know, you got your <laughs> pastrami, you got your pepperoni, you got your olives, you got your pepper jack. No, it's, it's very much of an individual. And I would say, cause I know you really well, I would say whenever um, one of the parishioners experiences that loss of a spouse. Um, you're probably already finding ways and those, those uh, gears are turning in order to, in the next coming weeks, months, etc. how to connect um, this individual with this person, this resource. So, uh, and that is is um that is an art that is not a science that is an art within i think ministry within humanity within understanding um trauma understanding people and that lived human experience yes now to another piece of trauma that uh, all of us have mentioned uh, the the COVID restrictions oh. and what that did to isolate people further and to derail some of these things that were gaining momentum. So when you're wanting to connect somebody back to uh, doing something as simple as coming in and being a receptionist, or even if they don't want to answer the phone, we always have bulletins that need to be stuffed, or if we have some mailing that goes out, three or four people would come in and they could sit up a table and just stuffing uh, the mass schedule into the Christmas card that goes to all the parishioners as an illustration uh, is magical to watch. It's really magnificent because just the chemistry between the three or four people when they're doing a menial task, they're laughing, they're cutting up, they're telling a story, they may cry about something, uh, and, and it's terrific. When you have restrictions to where people have to be six feet apart, you lose some of that uh, interaction. Just as we had mentioned early on with doing this meeting by Zoom, if we were sitting in the same room and there was a camera rolling, the camera would fade into the background and the conversation would feel different, at least to me. Uh, this is pretty good, but it's still a little artificial for me. Uh, and by extension, some of these things that we've been doing for collecting the community in small groups or in a large congregational gathering have, have felt 
uh, strained, I think would be a good word for it. That's a good word. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we have to pay attention to those things and help people move through that and rebuild and to learn or relearn how do you interact socially? Some people are still rather awkward about it. Some have tried to return just to their previous way of operating and mm-hmm. they're finding that uh, some people are giving them resistance and pushback. Oh yeah. So where in the past uh, they come out of mass and, you know, I, I hug and pat and uh, I'm a tactile person. There are some people that would always bristle and, and you know, um, they either give you the A-frame hug or they they tense and you know not to hug them and you don't want to invade somebody's space. Mm-hmm. But now there are a lot of people that don't know whether or not to allow somebody to give them a high five or to shake their hand or even touch them on the shoulder. Uh, you know, just give them a, a pat showing them that there is a human connection and that you're caring about them. Uh, so they become skittish. And it's uh, thwarting some opportunities for uh, us as human beings to truly feel present <clears throat> to each other. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Like, I can relate to that, not even just in a church setting, but like in a um, a Kroger, like, you know, just in a store. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of COVID, the way I was thinking is very different than in this middle part of this, whatever it's going to be. But in the beginning, I was thinking, are these people crazy? Like, are they not aware of the fact that this disease is airborne. And if you're coming in my space, you could be putting my life or the life of people I love at risk. Right. Right. And I'd be like, Oh, what the, what's your problem? Why aren't you wearing your mask? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you? That is from a sympathetic nervous system response of a fight and a flight at the same time reaction. Um, now, two and a half, almost three years in, uh, doing the work on the nervous system and understanding the beauty of humanity is we all get choices, right? And just because somebody's choice doesn't align with my choice, um, it's my responsibility to keep my boundaries. And so to say to some of those people who aren't as maybe aware of how things have changed, right? Because they want their norm so desperately um, to just keep my boundary and say, oh, no, thank you. You know, um, yes, or, it takes it, it yeah. takes self-awareness and discipline mm-hmm. uh, to figure out how to work through this. So I'll give you an illustration. Uh, when 
things were starting to open back up and the kids went back to school. We have fourth, fifth, and sixth graders right at 300 of them on our campus. They still had to have some social distancing and all those pieces. There was a consideration of how do we fit them all in church for mass because the church would hold way more than the 300 kids, but not at six feet apart. So there was a proposal that one grade level, which would be four classes, about 100 kids, would come and the other two would attend mass from their classroom, watching it on a screen, which is way different than being in the church building itself. Uh, not an ideal solution, but it was a proposal that could work. Father Jamie and I agreed to add an extra mass on Thursdays so that the regular school mass, which would be at nine o'clock, wouldn't be the only mass for the kids. We would add another one at 10 and then we moved the nine o'clock mass to 8.30. So one group got to come at 8.30 One group got to come at 10 o'clock. And then we have new mass on Thursdays as well for the parish. That was a way to get 200 of the kids in church instead of just 100. And it let that other grade level only have once every three times not coming to, to, to mass. Another piece of that for interacting with kids, because, you know, the kids are like, come on, you know, they're uh, wanting to uh, wrestle with each other or touch on each other in some way, because kids are very interactive. Mm -hmm. I would always, before the COVID restrictions, stand at the door of mass and as they were coming out, uh, and had gotten outside of the church, the, the kids would always want to give you a high five. And I would do like speed shaking. I'd make half of them do it left-handed so that, you know, you get two rows at one time. It would be efficient. But they didn't do it. Uh, so when they started back to these masses with the COVID restrictions, uh, I just naturally wanted to do that but as the kids came, they're thinking, okay, can't touch him, can't do that. I said, air high five, you know, and I would do it and I'd act like I'd bounce my hand back like it, like they had really hit it, you know. And the kids got into it because it was a way to interact and to acknowledge one another. And that was uh, a lot of fun. And where the inspiration arose, who knows, but it, it was good for me. And it appeared to be beneficial to the kids as well because it got them engaged. That's a beautiful story. And a beautiful way of still connecting, even with the inability to connect in the fashion that perhaps we all desire. Yeah. Yes. 
Shelby, just, your your wheels are turning. You're about ready for a, a difficult question. I, I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a difficult question. I'm just processing how beautiful this conversation has been and the value of human connection in both day-to-day life and in the process of healing from grief or trauma and the importance of community. That's really what I'm gaining from all of this is that recognition that community is important when we go through something, whether it be a global pandemic or whether it be the loss of a loved one, it's community that is what we crave as a part of the human experience. I really appreciate you making that the foundation of this conversation. I feel like that's what I'm taking from this. I've learned a lot. Thank you. I've enjoyed having this conversation and I'm hearing the bell ring uh, across the street at church. So uh, that tells me we've been speaking for an hour. (laughs) I know. I was just getting ready to say we're coming to the close of our time together, Father Mike, because it's it is right at 11. Do you have any um, final words um, for today or any final thoughts? Uh, I'll have to quote my dad, and I'm sure he uh, plagiarized it from some source. I know my one of my great uncles uh, had the same expression and disposition. Uh, there's always a solution. So if you start with that and an openness to God's inspiration and uh, the creativity. Uh, It's amazing what unfolds. And when you risk sharing that, it's incredible to see how that's contagious and it it draws other people in. Uh, Sometimes people close down and they don't see a way through. And they said, you know, this is a hopeless situation. If you can invite them and encourage them to uh, not just see things as a problem, but to see the challenge as an opportunity for growth. Uh, And then whether you say it in these words or not, or frame it differently, uh, if you have the attitude of, when you encounter this challenge or this problem, uh, try on your own to figure out three options or three solutions, if you will. Then when you go to express, you know, I'm, I'm grieving or I have COVID restrictions on this or whatever, you don't stop right there and get arrested in the development you begin to open up to those possibilities. And then when you uh, enter a conversation with other people, there's not just all this negative energy. You know, I've got a problem, I'm hurting, I'm doing whatever. Because that really shuts down some of the opportunity for the larger connection because people will tolerate that for a little while and then they're like, I'm finished. I'm steering clear of this person. Mm -hmm. 
So if you get the person themselves to uh, to start doing some of that work, then there is a spark of excitement and they, they can acknowledge here's the challenge or here's my problem or here's the struggle. And I'm thinking about this, this, or this. Whoever their sounding board is, whether it's a, another individual or a group, that begins to open up dialogue and foster invitation for these other people to say, uh, have you thought about this? Now, all of a sudden, they have five potential pathways instead of just a problem or a challenge or a struggle. Oh, I love that. I'm going to use that in my sessions. Thank you. <laughs> well, you're welcome. And, and if you live that way or attempt to, people are drawn to you just because of that sense of uh, positive energy and spirit. Mm-hmm. However we want to call it. Uh, and, and that's a beautiful thing. So I, I'm finished. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Father Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of. I know you're very busy to sit down with Shelby and I today and talk about a trauma um, that like I had never thought of really. Um, so again, just beautiful conversation, beautiful insight. Um, yes, and- thank you. And spark some natural curiosity. I like that fostering that natural curiosity for growth and positivity in all different fashions. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate the invitation and it's nice to meet you, not in person, Shelby, but one day. And Jennifer, it would be nicer always... in person. <laughs> I'm sorry. So it would be nicer in person. You were saying about the Zoom, it's not as natural for conversation. And just now, this could have been a natural flow of like jumping in and jumping in, but then my little box lights up and it kind of puts that hesitation it impedes the flow a little bit but it's great meeting you yes in person one day and jennifer always a pleasure uh, speaking with you and when you and i uh, start back and forth with one another no telling uh, what topic we will uh, land on and that's okay we can uh, be fascinated about and hear the other's opinion about all uh, of the the whole uh, spectrum of of life and that's uh, truly something that's that's uplifting and stimulating and i appreciate uh, having you as a friend and as a colleague well thank you the respect and love and uh, connection is mutual <laughs> this has been great. I'll celebrate um, that. Yes, this has been fabulous. And um, for all of our listeners out there, for start by listening, thank you for tuning in today. Um, as I always try to end each podcast with, start listening today so you can change the world tomorrow and have a beautiful day. 
Well, we've made it to the end of our episode. We want to thank you for listening. We hope you'll take something you heard today and use it to change the world tomorrow. We wanted to thank our music producer, Seth Hedges, from Uriah Wild Media. His website is in the show description. Also, a big shout out to Roddy Newton, our technical advisor. See you next time. This project was supported by grant number VOCA 2020 Green River 26, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet by the U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet or the U.S. Department of Justice. Thank you.